Thank you for joining us last episode on The Reading Rainbow, where we discussed Christopher Columbus and his discovery of the Cayman Islands and Central America. Now let us move on to the western side of South and Central America and how different influences of the world may have impacted those areas. Let us begin. Mirrors of Culture. Remarkable similarities between the cultural relics of the Far East and the ancient Americas suggest to some that there were trans-Pacific voyages in the distant past. Could this suggest that Asia had an hand in discovering America? Could the Chinese or Japanese have discovered America? Dim as the past may be, the obscurity is deepened by our own inability to see properly. We wear the blinders of cultural bias. Thus, North and South Americans tend to look across the Atlantic to the Old World as the cradle of civilization. But it is around the rim of the broad Pacific Ocean that we find suggestions of earlier contact between the ancient peoples of Asia and the Native Americans of thousands of years ago. Archaeologists and anthropologists have documented numerous similarities between contemporary cultures on or near the Pacific coasts of the American and Asian continents. As we shall see, many curious motifs in ancient American art, so odd as to seem unique when seen in isolation, might in fact reflect Asian themes. Had the centuries then seem an acceptance of the existence of America on part of the knowledgeable thinkers in the countries of the Far East? Did ancient adventurers from such highly successful and distinctive civilizations, such as China, India, and Japan, not only know about the Americas, but also visit and influence the natives living there. For the definitive answers, archaeologists must discover an upart, or out-of-place artifact. Perhaps, for example, some fortunate scholar will find a fragment of Japanese pottery buried in an Ecuadorian grave. A simple Buddhist talisman might be hidden in one of the presumed numerous sites still to be explored by professional archaeologists. To date, however, no such artifact has been found, at least not one that has received the respect of traditional scholars in this field. The debatable possibility of trans-Pacific contacts in pre-Columbian times has been pieced together from ancient Chinese annals. Such lore as the currents and wind patterns of the inappropriately named Pacific, and most important of all, parallels in art motifs have been described as cultural mirrors. One of the most intriguing indications of Asian influence upon ancient America was discovered along the coast of Ecuador in 1956. There on a slope to adjacent the barren salt flats near the fishing village of Valdivia, an archaeologist uncovered a type of pottery not found elsewhere in the New World. Manufactured about 5,000 years ago, Valdivia was where was then the oldest known pottery in America. These early inhabitants of Valdivia 
were most probably hunters, fishermen, and gatherers. They lived largely on food from the sea, as evidenced by the shellfish hooks and pebble sinkers found among the fragments of pottery. Unlike the work of other contemporary pre-Columbian cultures, such as the peoples to the north in Mexico and to the south in Peru, Valdivian pottery is characterized by the diversity of shapes and decorative techniques. A style has been called incongruous. Suddenly, it would seem, a highly developed and varied body of ceramic work appears in the archaeological record, virtually out of nowhere. Simple wear indicating a line of development is not in evidence at the Valdivia site. What explains this burst of artistic inspiration and technical competence in a fairly isolated, seemingly unimportant coastal settlement? The answer might well lie more than 8,000 nautical miles away across the Pacific in the Japanese islands of Honshu and Kyushu. Pottery found at Valdivia bears a striking resemblance to pottery of the Jaman culture of Japan, made in the same period about 3000 BC. For example, a unique type of castellated rim found on a red clay incised vessel in Valdivia has been found to exist in great quantities at Jaman sites. It is rare anywhere else in the world, so far as is known, for this time period, but perhaps even more significant to scholars interested in Valdivia and its history is the fact that Jaman ceramics are clearly part of a tradition that can be traced back to simple vessels as old as 9,000 years ago, or around 7,000 BC. In other words, what is missing in Valdivia that has been discovered in Japan, a tradition of pottery making that can be seen evolving over several millennia. The flowering of technique and the aesthetic appeal that seems inexplicable in Valdivia is by contrast shown to be a slow progressive development in the islands of Japan. To archeologist Betty J. Meagers and Clifford Evans who investigated the Valdivia pot herds the answer to this puzzle was obvious they proposed that the art of pottery making was introduced to valdivian villagers by japanese fishermen who made an unexpected landfall in ecuador some four thousand years before the vikings reached the shores of north america how likely is such contact no doubt the jaman fishermen were fearless on the water and had learned how to survive the vicissitudes of the Pacific. Typhoons are born not far to the south of Japan, and some of the Pacific's strongest currents race near the southern shore of Kyushu. Possibly blown off course and far from home, a boatload of Jaman fishermen found themselves in a current traveling slowly but insistently north of Hawaii, southeastward down the North American shore and then southward to Ecuador. How could anyone survive such a rigorous and lengthy voyage that would have taken months? Supporters of Diffusionist theory point out that these ancient sailors 
would have been inured to exposure to the elements and would probably have known how to cope with hunger and thirst on a long sea voyage. If this is so, it raised a question in many minds. Why not other indications of contact? Perhaps other evidence decayed, or perhaps it was simply not been found yet. Perhaps it was only in the making of pottery that the Jaman fishermen saw a cultural gap that could be closed with the relative case. In any event, samples of pottery from Valdivia and from Jaman sites show such a great number of decorative and technical parallels that diffusionists feel these similarities cannot be explained as mere coincidence. Whether or not the amazed villagers of the Valdivia region in fact looked up one day to find the exhausted Jaman fishermen bearing gratefully toward the shore, it was to be some 3,500 years before another major Trans-Pacific contact might have occurred. According to the 7th century Chinese records of the Liang dynasty, kept by the historian Li Yan, a Buddhist priest named Hu Shen had sailed eastward from China to the land of Fusheng. In the 5th century AD, the priest reported that the kingdom of Fusheng was a peaceful, if strange, paradise without armies or taxes. The Fusang tree provided the inhabitants with food and bark for making of cloth and paper. Copper was used, but not iron, and neither gold nor silver was treasured. Unlike many tales of adventure-filled sea journeys and marvelous discoveries of lands beyond the horizon, Hu Shen's account is convincingly down to earth. The priest paid attention to all manner of domestic details, almost as if he were accurately scouting the land for missionaries to follow. He noticed carts pulled by horses and cattle, and that the people kept herds of deer and made a creamy substance out of their year-round and abundant supply of grapes. He reckoned the maritime journey to be approximately 20,000 li, about 7,000 nautical miles, which indeed is close to the distance the Chinese would have to travel to reach North America. Once again, there are those who will argue that the currents across the North Pacific could easily have swept a ship towards the Alaskan shore and then southward to landfall in Mexico or our own fair California, as one proud writer has surmised. How Hugh Shen returned to China to tell his tale, however, is not as easily explained. It is not difficult to match some of Hugh Shen's descriptions with what is known of life along the coast of Americas in the first millennium A.D. The Fusang tree is not unlikely the century plant found in the Americas, and we know that copper was used in Mexico, but not iron. On the other hand, wheeled carts and beasts of burden were unknown in Mexico, and the fruit of the century plant is neither pear-shaped nor red. The story was debated back and forth during the 19th century, with critics concluding that if Fu Sang ever existed, it best described an island off the shore of Japan. Fu Sang became a political poetical term 
for Japan in Chinese literature. At the 1875 meeting of the International Congress of Americanists held at Nancy in France, Fu Sang was on the agenda and provoked a heated argument. The exasperated delegate from Austria, Frederick de Hellerwald, hoped that the Congress of Nancy would rather render a true service to science in declaring that it holds the Fu Sang theory to be scientific sea serpent and in forbidding it to infest henceforth the latitudes of Americanism. The blown across theory was a favorite explanation for Pacific as well as for Atlantic crossings. In 1827, an Englishman, John Ranking, revealed an unbridled imagination by calling his work historical researches on the conquest of Peru and Mexico in the 13th century by Mongols accompanied with elephants. In it, he claimed that the Inca civilization of Peru owed its origins to ships' crews of the 13th century Chinese emperor Kublai Khan, whose armada intended for the conquest of Japan was scattered by a great storm. Surviving vessels were blown along with their elephants across the Pacific. Another 19th century writer proposed an alternate theory. In 1836, he suggested that a party of Koreans to escape their tyrannic conquerors had abandoned their homeland to find a colony across the sea. After a nine-week voyage, the Koreans, as the writer styled them, spelt C-O-R rather than K-O-R, discovered a new land. This land, called Santini, was very reasonably supposes to be America, he wrote. This information tends to prove beyond the possibility of a doubt that the Koreans were the first that visited the New World from Asia. An even more curious tale of Trans-Pacific crossing involved the young conqueror Alexander the Great of Macedonia. According to the story, after Alexander died of a fever in 323 BC, his powerful fleet of many ships headed east from the Persian Gulf, only to vanish into thin air. The theorist has suggested that the remnants of his lost fleet later turned up on the shores of America where survivors established great civilizations. Are these tales daring just so many colorful legends that have sprung up over the centuries, like the claim that Coronado's men sighted strange ships with figureheads of golden pelicans at the Colorado River in 1540, or like the 16th century report by a Franciscan friar who spotted eight sail of the exotic ship near the Pacific coast of Mexico. To expand on this theory, we're going to switch back to the Book of Knowledge for a few minutes. We get to the Book of Men and Women and the story of great lives. Have you ever thought, when looking through the window, that once upon a time there was not a pane of glass in the world? Then a man dug things out of earth and mixed them and made something hard, smooth, and clear, 
so that he could see through it. We call it glass. Who was he? We do not know. But let us think of the great debt we owe him as we stand at the window and look out. And all through our lives, let us remember that we owe more than we can ever pay to those who lived before us. To those who wrote books and painted pictures, who discovered the power of steam and made railways, who discovered gas and lighted our houses, who made our roads, who gave us tools to work with, to the doctors who found out the secrets of health, to the travelers who found new lands, to those who laid down their lives that we might live and know more and more. We shall read here some of these great adventures. Men who made the world known. Although millions of people live in America, nobody in this country is so stupid as to think that these are all the people there are or that ours is the only country in the world. We know that by crossing the sea to the east, we reach first the British Isles, and then the continent of Europe, and going forward first over the land, then over the sea, we may get to Egypt and China and India, and the great islands of the great lands of the east. Far down to the south, a very long distance away, we come to Australia and New Zealand, with all their people. If we turn to the north, there is Canada, with its millions. Down to the south are the people of the southern American republics, and away to the west lies the empire of Japan, where we meet the people of the east again. It does not seem a clever thing to know all this is now, but once upon a time people in Britain thought there was no other land but theirs, and no other people but themselves. Other people in different parts of the world used to think the same thing about their countries and themselves. They did not travel from country to country as we do now, so they could not get to know of far-off places and different peoples. When they did begin to learn that the world had many different countries and many different peoples, they were as surprised as we should be if we suddenly discovered the air above to be full of islands and people. People living where the weather is always warm never dreamed that there were such things as snow and ice. To those who lived where the weather is always cold did not imagine that there were parts of the world where it is always summer, where oranges and grapes grow wild in the sunshine where birds of paradise fly like living rainbows and mist the trees, and fireflies dance like winged rubies in the glowing air. The story is told in the story of the earth on page one of how people used to think that the earth was flat. The people of those early times did not find it easy to make their way about the world and to discover other countries and people. Still, little by little, they did learn their way about. And there were people living all around the Mediterranean Ocean, and they began to spread about, and to find that the world was larger than they thought. There were wonderful people living in the north of Palestine, called the Phoenicians. Their country ran along by the sea for a distance as great as that between New York and Boston, and they built tiny ships and began to explore this great sea. They made friends with King David and King Solomon. 
they went to greece and spain they even went to england they found the way overland to india and china and persia and parts of africa well that had all been forgotten and hundreds of years later rome so proud to think herself mistress of all the world did not know that there was such a place as china and china had never heard of rome one day somebody brought news to the court of china saying that far away there was another part of the world with many rich people in it the name of the place was not known but china made up her mind to have the place no matter what it might be called a great chinese general was sent with an army through the center of the continent of asia to conquer this unknown land but he was taken ill before he could get far centuries passed away and rome was conquered by barbarians and then nearly all that had been learned was lost again stupid men who thought nothing about learning destroyed all the writings that they could and so the world was divided off again much as it had been before the people in one country knowing little or nothing about those in other countries think what the world lost by this if all the books in the world today were destroyed and no more were printed for hundreds of years people would not be able to read and some day they would have to begin again to learn all that we know now so as that sort of thing did happen in the old days and people went for hundreds of years without learning again what had been lost we need not be surprised that caesar had never heard of china or that shakespeare never knew that there was such a place as australia we shall see in our stories of discoverers and explorers how the great heroes of old times found their way about the world through strange and savage lands and upon the seas over which they had nothing to guide them to enjoy the stories it would be better if we can have a map or globe of the world before us because it is then easier to understand the boy who walked to china marco polo and his wonderful adventures it is a wonderful thing but it has to a great extent the doings of a boy which set men exploring the great seas to find their way about the world as we have already seen men from time to time go about but as they made a secret of what they saw and did their knowledge was no service to the rest of mankind marco polo was only a small boy of fifteen and not very strong when he set out on his travels through the strange lands among savage people to find his way to china but when he grew up what he had seen and known was written in a book for all men to read his tales of strange countries and peoples and of rich splendors of other lands made other men want to go where he had been his book told them how he had got there so they were able to go by the route which he had followed but it also caused them to make up their minds to go by sea to the other countries which he had visited marco polo did not go alone to china he went with his father and uncle he was born in venice and the only love of travel made them set out father and uncle had been to china and back and now they decided that the brave boy marco should go with them 
They had to go over mountains and across terrible deserts, through hot burning lands and places where the cold was terrible. Poor Marco was made quite ill by the hardships, but he got better and kept bravely on. At last they came to China, where a great king called Kublai Khan was very pleased to see them. Marco grew up at the court and became a great favorite of the king. Marco learned to speak several languages and was so clever that the king sent him as his ambassador to Cochin, China, to India, and to other lands. Each time he came back, Marco was able to tell the king not only the answer to the message with which he had been sent, but all about the countries themselves, how the people lived, what their trade were, and where the big cities and rivers and mountains wherever he went. The king had never had so clever an ambassador as this before, and he heaped riches on Marco and his father and uncle. At last the Polos returned, wanted to return to Venice, from which they had been absent for 23 years. The king was very sorry to let them go, but at last consented, and they came back. Marco remembered all he had seen and learned, and afterwards he had it all written down. For long, people did not believe his story to be true. They could not think it possible that there were such great lands as China and India, with millions upon millions of people, and the talk of silks and jewels and beautiful foods and the sense of which he told seemed just as untrue. But by and by, when men began to know more, they saw that there was some truth in this book. It set men studying and making bold plans for discovery. The great Columbus, who lived 200 years later, was one of those who studied the book, and it helped him greatly when he was making up his mind to try and find India by sailing over the sea to it. To show how hard Marco Polo found it to make people believe the account of his travels, we must read the story of what happened when he and his father and uncle got back to Venice. Nobody knew them. Nobody would believe that the little Marco Polo, who had gone away as a boy, had become a great traveler and come back a rich man. So the Polos asked their old friends to a great feast. First they appeared in robes of crimson satin. Then they changed these for other robes, and at last they came into the robe wearing the torn, soiled old clothes which they had worn in their wanderings. Their friends stared in surprise, and were still more startled when the three men cut open the patches of the old clothes and showed that these were filled with jewels, and then the people believed that the strangers really were the Polos, back from the far-off lands. The Man Who Found America The Story of Christopher Columbus and His Discovery Christopher Columbus did a greater thing than he knew. He thought he had discovered India, but it was not India which he had found by sailing out over the great unknown sea. It was New Land, America, though he died before the country was called by that name. Columbus never heard the name America. Columbus was very poor as a boy, but he was clever and learned all he could about geography and travel.
he was brave too and went to the sea as far as ships commanded by other men could carry him once he was wrecked and almost drowned whenever he could he read about marco polo's travels and other great adventurers he was born at genoa in italy and when he grew up he asked the rich people of his native town to provide him with a ship to go and look for new lands for he did not believe that the earth is flat as most people did at that time he believed it to be round he knew that india was far away at the back of italy where he had lived and he thought that it was part of a very great continent that reached far round into the sea on the other side of the world and he thought that if he sailed out across the ocean to the west he would come to the western side of india the people of genoa would not have anything to do with such a scheme so he went to portugal and asked the king to help him now this king was already sending out men and ships to explore the coast of africa and he thought there might be something in the plan of columbus but he was a bad deceitful man and secretly sent other men with a ship to do what columbus had asked to be allowed to do but the men on the king of portugal's ship were cowards and turned back frightened by the great sea when he heard what was being done columbus was angry and sad and went away at once and wrote to the king of england for help before anything could come of this he went with his little son to spain and through the king of portugal sent for him to go back he would not he went next to a spanish duke who could not help him but sent him to king ferdinand and king isabella of spain spain was at war with the moors and the plan of columbus was put off from time to time until at last he went away heavy of heart resolved to go to france he was so poor that he had to stop at a monastery and beg for bread for his little boy the monks took him in and were charmed with his strange talk one man there happened to be a friend of the queen of spain he wrote at once to her telling her how important was the plan of columbus and she sent for columbus to go again to the court but once more he was disappointed he was kept waiting about the court the queen being engaged in games while the man who was wanting to discover the new world was sorrowing in neglect he set off for france at last and then the queen knew that he was really in earnest and this time had him brought back and caused three little ships to be fitted out for him he set sail on friday august third fourteen ninety two when he was forty-six years old it was a strange and wonderful voyage over an ocean which so far as he knew nobody else had ever sailed his crews were terrified and wanted him to turn back and he had great difficulty in making them obey they sailed on for two months and a week and then at ten o'clock at in the night of october eleventh fourteen ninety two columbus saw a light shining in the darkness he thought that land was there and next morning he found that he was right there before them lay a beautiful island columbus dressed himself in his richest clothes and bearing the banner of spain 
he went on shore. There he made all his crew kneel down and bless God and kiss the ground and give thanks for God's mercies in bringing them to this place. Columbus then claimed the island for the king of Spain and went on his way finding other islands. These islands, he thought, must be the western islands of India because the East Indies were on the other side of the world. So he called them the West Indies and called the people on them Indians. They were not Indians, but so they call, were called. And all the red men in America were called Red Indians for the same reason. It was America that Columbus had found, but he thought it was India. He discovered another island, which is called Cuba, and a third, which is called San Domingo, now named Haiti. One of his ships was wrecked, so he took the word from her and built a fort with it at Ilati. Ayati. In this, he left some of his men and then returned to Spain. He was received with great honors and soon set out again for the west. He made more discoveries of islands and still more in the third trip. Although he had done such a great thing, Columbus was made very sad by his enemies. Men were angry because of his success and told spiteful and false tales about him. Once he was put in chains like a common thief. He was very poor and very lonely when he died. America was the name given to the land after Columbus died. A man named Amerigo Vespucci explored the coast which Columbus had described and found that it was not the coast of India. It is a new world, he said. For a long time, the land was called simply the New World, but at last it was decided to call it after the man who had found it was not India. It was called America after Amerigo, instead of after the man who found it. America was discovered by Columbus in 1492. It was not named America until the year 1506. Thank you for listening to today's episode. On the next episode, we will be going into artistic parallels between Asian art and South American art and expanding on our theory of why Asia may have found the American continent first. Please join us next time on Reading Rainbow, and we hope you enjoyed our company. Have a wonderful day.